I imagine many of the people who listen to this show might consider themselves in some way or another to be a quote-unquote seeker. In other words, in search of some kind of understanding that they presently don't have. And you could think of this as being somewhat akin to the hero's journey, uh, following what, what fundamentally tugs at you and, and trying to get to the root of it, you know, confronting the dragon, if you like. So, you know, there are those who may do that within the physical domain. You could say, you know, literally trying to slay evil in the world, I suppose. Uh, but, of course, I think that that's incredibly foolhardy until you've figured out exactly what the evil thing is, because it's not entirely clear uh, what it is. It's easy to point to something and say, oh, that's terrible, and, uh, and then to try to organize against it. And I think that's a common way of going about, you know, and quite often people do this when they're young, right? When we're, when we're just gaining awareness of the world around us and we see something that we think is wrong and then we think we can identify the, the source of that wrong, well, then we attach ourselves to a cause, Right? But I think anyone who continues to think about things realizes that it's, it's not quite that simple. How many times has a movement been successful just because it fights against what it doesn't like? You know, there's the whole, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and it sure does seem like quite often movements end up producing consequences they hadn't anticipated or they just uh, turn into something that pretends to do its original mission. But when you really take a look under the hood, it's, it's, not, it's not what it said it was going to be. Which isn't to say that you shouldn't try, you know, but there's a degree of sophistication necessary in order for something to be effective, which is quite often just simply not part of the story when idealistic, particularly young idealistic people, are trying to change the world. And in a very complex world where there are many different actors trying to achieve different goals with a wide range of different power differentials, the amount of influence that they have, and the ability to infiltrate organizations, it's like, it's definitely not an easy uh, path to envision to bringing about the kind of change that one hopes for. You know, on the other hand, I, I wouldn't say that it's that difficult to identify some evil in this world. I think it's pretty clear that there are individuals and institutions that are incredibly greedy and which abuse, oppress, and, and really just destroy the lives of an incredibly large number of, of living sentient beings. It's not just human beings, but you know, the natural world has suffered a great deal because of the decisions of a few powerful people and some large corporations, that sort of thing. But, you know, then there, there does get to be this kind of general question of responsibility regarding anyone who happens to be 
employed by one of these giant corporations that are doing these terrible things. And, you know, the, the thing that's kind of amazing about society is that it has set up these systems where tasks are broken up into small little pieces such that uh, the responsibility of this terrible thing is shared by a large number of people and each of them independently aren't really responsible for what's going on. They're fulfilling a role in essentially a machine, but they themselves quite often, not always perhaps, right? But quite often they're just, they could be very nice people doing one small little task in a giant project. They may not even be aware of, of the consequences of their role. Uh, you know, which is not to excuse what's going on, but rather, I think, to explain it, uh, both in terms of how people can do it and why we shouldn't necessarily point to anyone who's involved in one of these corporations as, you know, an exemplar of everything that's wrong with the world. And I think another thing that's really worth pointing out here is that, you know, life itself proceeds on a very similar basis, right? The cells in our bodies each have an individual task, and that individual task, in essence, uh, goes into this project which produces waste and then puts it somewhere that, that we don't care about. <laughs> you know? uh, I mean, and... And our bodies are, are kind of very selfish, right? They're, they're trying to preserve ourselves, right? So it's, it's very similar what civilization does and what companies do. They're, they're trying to preserve themselves basically in the same way that, that biological entities do. So, you know, those of us who are seekers, you know, I remember this joke from Fireside Theater that there's a seeker born every minute. <laughs> So there's, I guess, a lot of us, but I think that there's certain periods of time where there's more seekers than, than other periods of time, and we're in one of those times. So there's a lot of seeking going on. I'm not sure how much finding is going on. I'm not sure how much I found. I think I found a few things, but uh, I'm not sure how helpful they are. I think they're helpful in kind of maintaining a philosophical disposition towards life. But I don't know that they're helpful at all in, in the conducting of my life. I feel in many respects that, at least so far, I've been somewhat of a failure when it comes to uh, success. <laughs> I'm a failure when it comes to success. You know, I've done a lot of projects that I think are interesting, but they don't ever add up to anything in the bank account, which is not the ultimate measure of whether or not a project is a success, but it is definitely an impediment when it comes to the conducting of my day-to-day -day life. But having said all that, it just occurred to me that, you know, there may be a way of viewing things that I hadn't thought of previously when it comes to all this, because... You could think of the, the moment where the seekers show up as being this kind of dawning of awareness. Like we were in the dark before. And then we realized that we were in the dark. And now we're searching around trying to find the light. And my sense is that this is a cyclical pattern, that this happens within civilizations at a certain point within the civilization, at a crisis point. 
you know, where, where the narratives of the civilization start to fall apart. In other words, when the civilization realizes that it's Babylon. And I just, okay, I'll just, I'll just say it. I'm not sure exactly how to introduce this, but it just occurred to me, like, maybe we're a slave species, You know, maybe on some level that's what it means to be a social animal. Which is not to say that all conditions of slavery are the same, but that on some very basic level, you know, one way that you might explain what's going on is that when a society has vigor to it, then those who are really in control of it will enforce narratives and really make sure that anything that goes contrary to the narrative is forced out. So it's like a strong narrative immune system. But at a certain point, it's like when you're tending a crop, right? Uh, if, if the crop becomes diseased, there's a point where it's no longer worth tending it. There's no longer, it's not worth the effort to, to try to save it. So when a society basically is used up, right? When, when the energy that it has has been tapped out and people are like relying on methamphetamine and coffee in order to get themselves through the day, <laughs> which is pretty much what's been happening here, at least in the United States. I don't know. I, I think, you know, in many places in the Western world, certainly coffee. And there's this e exhaustion, Right. And so, you know, the global masters then let loose the reins. And and what happens is a natural sorting mechanism where you, you see you get to see when you let loose the reins and the narrative is free. You get to see the ones who will cling to the safety of the old narrative no matter what. And so on a certain level, it's like, oh, well, those are the ones who are the most reliable slaves. Right? You can still rely on them to do what, what, whatever the narrative says. And then you see the ones who are kind of like poking around, looking for some other perspective. And they'll attach themselves to a whole range of different things, right? Which gives you a whole bunch of information about what's going on in society. You get to see like... Oh, well, these people are drawn towards, let's say, environmental issues or um, social justice issues or uh, liberty, like the whole libertarian thing, um, freedom of speech, right? Uh, some of them are about freedom of the press, which is related to freedom of speech and also kind of the truth to power type of thing. So pointing out the hypocrisies and lies and that sort of thing, people get dedicated to those kinds of causes, I guess you could say. And then there are the ones who really are willing to like stick their heads out and, and, and they can be used as an example, which is exactly what happened with Julian Assange, right? So this was a guy who became deeply obsessed with the behavior of the security state and wanted to reveal its true operations or was willing to, let's say, he, he set up a platform that would allow people to more easily and with less risk become a whistleblower. 
And so he was basically a publisher of people who had uh, access to government secrets. And he, <laughs> he, uh, he caused quite a stir. And he is now, you know, basically been rotting away in a prison for, I think it's four years in the UK prison. And prior to that, he was in the Ecuadorian embassy for many years. So he's essentially been in prison for, I would think, almost a decade. I don't really know the exact number for being essentially a publisher. You know, in, 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 a, in a system that has prided itself on being the free world and that has presented itself to the world as if, oh, well, this is where we have a free press. This is, this is the, the example for the rest of the world. This is where freedom flourishes. This is where people can say what they want. And, it, you know, it wasn't even as if he had said anything that wasn't true. It wasn't really even that he had said anything. He basically presented the documents that showed what was going on. <clears throat> and so what does this tell us about the system that we've been living in? Well, it tells us that, that it was not free. That, it, that it's the slave system. That, that we can tell ourselves that we're free. We have this narrative, right, that we're all pretending that we're part, part of this free world. But obviously it's not true. Because if, as soon as it, it's not true in one case, it's not true in all cases. And we've seen many instances now just how easily and how people are kicked off of, of their platforms now for saying things that aren't aren't sanctioned. And this has changed a little bit because of Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. And I wouldn't say that it's changed in a clean cut way. It's not clear the extent to which this is really being addressed by Musk, but it's changed. It's not the same situation as it was under the pr previous Twitter regime. And while Twitter is perhaps not the most important platform, it's an, a significant platform. So it's, it's an incredibly interesting time, but I think that, that what we've learned, you know, so if, if you're trying to get a sense, you know, a lot of people think, well, we, we lost our democracy and we lost our, our freedoms. And, and perhaps that's true, but I'm more likely, I think I'm tempted, and, and in a way the thrust of this whole thing is to, is to reframe that and say, well, no, we probably never really had a democracy. And the more you look into the history in the United States, the more it really just becomes obvious. Like I've been listening recently to Daryl Cooper, the Martyr Made podcast. He does a long piece about the Appalachian area and the people who had settled there who were one of the very few remaining truly independent groups of people out there and how they were uh, swindled basically, into becoming coal miners. And then their brutal struggle against the coal companies and their hired militia. You know, it's hard for people to really wrap their heads around just how people have struggled in the United States, in this land of the free and the home of the brave.
And there have been some major struggles and, and some modicum of success. But in general, it seems like the system really does not operate on the basis of freedom or democracy. It seems that it's always essentially been a system that, like pretty much every other governmental system, operates on the basis of the interests of power. Now, there's some resistance to the interests of power, but the point that I'm making about what's happening now in the world where every seeker can be monitored, like we're all, there's all a big, you know, data collection effort here. And part of the brilliance of the internet is that it gives people exactly what they want and it gives the information collectors exactly what they want. So we can all seek out whatever it is that we're looking for and they can basically see, oh, well, that's, that's how, you know, society is dispersing itself in its narrative progression. And they see who's useful and who isn't. And they're just going to shut down those of us who aren't, aren't useful. And I'm pretty sure that I'm not useful to them. I'm pretty sure that most of us aren't. I don't know if it's only the people who will cling to that official narrative no matter what. You know, it may be that they'll get shut down too because quite often they're so scared and so clueless as to what's really going on that they're essentially useless, <laughs> you know. There's some sort of a sweet spot somewhere, I think, in terms of, you know, one's attitude towards the world and your set of skills. And I, I have not really figured out how to occupy that. I'm, I'm not in the worst situation, but I'm not in a great situation, that's for sure. And I, I imagine that it's going to be very difficult, particularly in a world that's defined by, you know, the increased reliance on AI and robots. It's like so many jobs. Like you, you, every day there, there's a new dozen or so articles or videos of people talking about how scared they are about AI, like replacing... For instance, there were a number of uh, pieces on news networks where the host of the show read the introduction that was generated by AI. And it sounded basically exactly, I mean, you know, they sound like robots for a long time now. So that's not, <laughs> that's not it, it really seems like they should be the first ones to go. Uh, and apparently, if I remember correctly, there's already uh, an AI uh, newscaster in China. <laughs> So, so it's like a lot of the people who thought they had good jobs, that may not be the case, right? And I have no idea. You know, it may ultimately be that all this data collection, it's not even going to be analyzed by human beings. It may be that AI is going to figure out who's useful and who isn't. <laughs> that, that could be where, we're, where we are. You know, and a lot of people, what, what, what you're seeing is, for the last 20 years or so, it was, a, you know, everyone who was talking about this issue was like, this is going to be an issue. But now, just within the last few weeks, now that chat GPT is online, just in the last few weeks, everyone is like, this is going to change now. Like, we are now in the middle of the change. And the change is so huge that people can't quite wrap their heads around how significant it's going to be. Partially because it's significant in just about every field you can think of. So, for instance, how are you going to be able to tell whether kids are writing their essays anymore? Like, you used to cheat by copying some other essay or 
having someone else write it for you. But now everyone can go into ChatGPT and just type in a, a prompt. And if you're a little bit sophisticated, you know, you can say, write an essay about Thomas Edison from the point of view of a fifth grader uh, who doesn't understand everything about Thomas Edison. <laughs> So, you know, that's a small example, but in a way it's a huge example. Because part of the problem now, of course, is that teachers have to become uh, detectives if they're going to have any ability to grade anything, you know, unless it's all like in-person tests, you know, and you lock away everyone's phone, what have you. And basically it, it eliminates the possibility of doing homework, which in some ways might be good. But ultimately, if it's not addressed, right, then, then students are going to be, let's say, tempted to learn even less than they're already learning. And we recently heard some numbers about how, you know, there's a lot of students who graduate without any competency in math. <laughs> I was never great at math, but, but I had some basic competency. I think actually one of the reasons why I wasn't great at math is that I got placed in an advanced math class. I think that they kind of pushed me into that a little too quick. And, you know, by the time I got past Algebra 2, I was just like, I don't want I, no, I can't do this. Now I'm sort of more interested in math. If I had more time on my hands, I would actually like to learn a little bit more about it. Even though I'm very suspicious of math, I really feel like you can't turn the world into numbers. And I just hate it when people say that, Mathematics is the language of nature. I just, I just think that's just so obviously wrong. But nevertheless, there's some very interesting things about math. So it's an interesting domain, that's for sure. Anyway, I don't want to wander too much on this. I, don't, I think I've said pretty much everything I had to say about it. I hope you found it interesting. It's nice to have just a 22-minute thing here. So I'll call it for now and um, encourage you to... Uh, take a little bit of action in reciprocation for the effort I'm making. If you just want to share it, that's awesome. If you do have extra money lying around, if you're one of those very few of us who do, uh, and you would like to share it, you may do so uh, at taijireality.substack.com or patreon.com slash taijireality. And what else? I feel like... Uh, you know, one of the things that I really could do better is to try to do all the things that people are supposed to do in order to make their podcast uh, profitable or at least supported. And I just don't seem to have that all together. I mean, at least I mentioned these things at the end, but I'm pretty sure that there's something else that I should be doing, and I'm not sure exactly what it is. Anyway, that's all I got right now. Take care, y'all. Adiós.